0: this episode of In the Weeds with Anne, I'm talking with Professor Dave Goulson from the Department of Life Sciences at the University of Sussex. He's had a lifelong fascination with insects, nature and wildlife in general. His academic speciality is the study of bees, but he's also written a number of popular science books, the most recent being The Garden Jungle. It's about gardening to save the planet. And about how small individual actions can make a big difference to our precious environment. So it's uh, early March, and I'm in East Sussex, and I'm talking to Dave Goulson. Um, And to give you your proper title, Professor Dave Goulson. Actually, I didn't ask you if I should address you as Professor (laughs) Goulson.
1: (laughs) Dave is fine.
0: Thank goodness. Okay, and um, you are the author of a fairly recently published book Mm -hmm. called The Garden Jungle.
1: Indeed, yes.
0: And it has a subtitle.
1: Uh, Yeah, um, Gardening to Save the Planet is the sort of subtitle. I couldn't make up my mind what to call it, so it ended up with two titles, basically. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's uh, it's actually, I always find it really hard to explain what the book is about because it's not a kind of gardening manual by any means. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's about kind of the wildlife that lives in gardens but also about the fact that wildlife's declining and the fact that we can help with the way we manage our gardens and people might think that that's kind of inconsequential you know really but actually the, the, we've, we've got nearly half a million hectares of gardens in the UK alone which is a bigger area than all the nature reserves. Um, And, you know, so my kind of dream is to persuade everybody to garden in a wildlife friendly way so that all those gardens become like a vast network of little nature reserves, um, which we could theoretically, if we could get local councils and so on on board, could be linked by... Road margins, railway cuttings full of flowers, roundabouts covered in flowers, parks full of flowers, and so on.
0: Sounds idyllic.
1: Yeah, well, I, it's just to me. And I, and it's it's kind of like a, you know, there's no downside, really. So, I mean, so the world, you know, is really complicated these days. There's all these environmental disasters unfolding around us. And and a lot of them, people feel completely helpless and yes. don't know what to do about them.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but, it, you know, you can do something in in your garden and it seems like the best place to me to start you know rather than trying of agonizing over over polar bears or tigers or whatever which is pretty difficult to do much for you know plant some <laughs> flowers to help you no there's not so no many around Sussex. no no not in Sussex <laughs> not anymore <laughs> um <laughs> and yeah so it's kind of you know to get trying to inspire people to basically get out into whatever little patch they've got mm. and and just kind of manage it in a more sensitive way you know don't use pesticides plant some pollinator-friendly flowers and put up a bee hotel and make a pond and just you know there's loads of little things that people can do and if everybody did them then you know it, it could really help to turn around the, the, the fate of our poor insects which you know sadly there's, there's tons of evidence that insects in particular are are declining really fast mm. And that could be, um, would be, um, if it continues, really, you know, uh, people don't much like insects. The honest truth is that apart from butterflies and perhaps one or two other types of insects, most people kind of think of insects as pests or mm. a creepy crawlies, you know, um, the tend to swat or squash anything that scurries or buzzes past well, they,
0: they sting and they
1: yeah well exactly I mean, very very few of them do if you really force them to but but people don't most people don't really appreciate insects but they should because insects are really really important i mean they, they make up um the bulk of life on earth are insects in terms of numbers of species you know we've named over a million species of insects so far, which is about two-thirds of all the things that we know of. Goodness. Um, and people estimate that there's probably another four or five million that we haven't even discovered yet living really? on, on the planet, which is pretty cool. It is. But also sad because we know that they, you know, you can, if we kind of know that they're going extinct even though we've never seen them you can you could you can estimate that you know as we clear the rainforests and do all these awful things to the planet yeah. that we that there must have been species that we'll never know now existed um, and and that's really sad but anyway so they make up the bulk of life they do all sorts of vital things you know they pollinate so without insects three quarters of the crops we grow wouldn't wouldn't produce anything you know things like tomatoes or blueberries or raspberries or strawberries or pumpkins or whatever that i could go on and on mm. even things like coffee um and chocolate mm. need pollinating so yeah. you know life essential food pretty exactly <laughs> exactly life would be pretty <laughs> miserable um and basically if it weren't for pollinators we'd be eating bread and porridge and rice and wind pollinated crops and and people would starve you know billions of people would starve yes um and they do other things, you know, they're kind of involved in nutrient cycling, so that things like cowpats get broken down by dung beetles and dung flies and dead bodies get eaten by maggots and, and carrion beetles and all sorts of things. Basically, they're everywhere, doing all sorts of things. Mm. And if they disappear, all those things will stop happening and basically the world will fall apart. So <laughs> it sounds dramatic, but, it but honestly, it, it, is. <laughs> it should be something that people are worried about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and people are starting to kind of come round to realising that there's a problem. You know, bees in particular have become a bit of a kind of poster child for insect declines. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the, I, my kind of mission in life is to try and win everybody over, make them realise that insects are important and get them involved in doing something to help, basically. Right. And that's what, that's really what the book is kind of, that's where it comes from, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean it certainly brings the message that we can all do something I think you're quite right most of us just feel pretty helpless actually and you think oh I've only got a little back garden what I do isn't that important but reading your book you certainly do feel that everything helps and it's I think it's laid out in a way that makes you feel I'll give it a go you know this I think what I picked up from the book which we'll talk about perhaps a bit more later on um, is now I really want to have a go um, digging a little pond. I've always been a bit mm. sort of um, ponds are great. Like I'm certain about doing that, but you, you were. so... I don't know really. I just feel I wouldn't. Would I? How would I know what to do with it? But I you mean, don't need to SSG do anything. Dig a hole and let it get on with it.
1: Absolutely. You could literally, if you just just dug a hole and lined it with something to make it waterproof, and did nothing else at all. With within just a few weeks, it would be full of life. You know, it's amazing how quickly things turn up. Obviously, you can speed that up if you put in some some aquatic plants around the edges and so on but they'll they'll come anyway i mean for insects will fly in within hours of you're finishing a pond you'll get things like pond skaters and water boatmen that fly at night and come crashing in uh whirligig beetles um and you know if you're lucky you might get some birds come and land with some eggs of other creatures on their feet that can't fly And so they'll get there and algae will start to grow. And before you know it, you know, there's a whole little world there and dragonflies will zoom in and lay their eggs and so on and so Mm. on. It's just, and I I don't know, there's something magical, I think, about water. Mm. Um, Makes a garden more interesting. And certainly from a wildlife perspective, they're fantastic. You know, obviously, um, make sure there's a way to escape for hedgehogs or anything else that falls in, but the only potential downside of a pond okay or and obviously if you've got kids you need to be a little bit careful how deep you make it but yeah they're soon to swim wouldn't they, exactly mine <laughs> mine my, 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 you know they're never came now. to any harm when they fell in um <laughs> and uh yeah it's i mean it's, and i mean, obviously a pond is it's a fairly big effort to make a pond you know even a small pond just requires a bit of digging and whatever but it's well worth it if you've got the got the time and um you know I, every garden should have a pond as far as i'm concerned
0: yeah so your garden has
1: yeah well I've got I I, there's a big one just out the window next to us um uh and then I I there's a little little one at the top and I put in the second one so one problem I have is the pond I inherited has some goldfish in it Mm. and you know people might be tempted to put goldfish in the. please if you do dig a pond don't don't put goldfish in it or any other fish actually if you're hoping to encourage insects because of course you know what do the fish eat all the insects uh, <laughs> and not just insects I mean they, they love tadpoles too so um, my, I've got this beautiful big pond out there and I do get some nice uh, dragonflies and damselflies And there's lots of life in there but because of the fish there's nowhere near as much as there might be and the frogs come every year and lay their spawn but then all of the tadpoles get eaten by the darn fish. So I never have any baby frogs. So I made a second pond, which is fish-free. Uh, it was only small, but the frogs spawned in there. Right. And, uh, and 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 the tadpoles do just fine so oh, good. Um, yeah avoid the fish would right. be my tip so it's just
0: strange again because you know again people who have ponds it's more or less the first thing they say, look at the fish I've got I
1: know koi I carp know and... koi spend a fortune on yeah. koi carp i mean sure you know obviously if you want to have fish have have your fish yes. but if you really want maximum insect and amphibian life then skip the fish right
0: good <laughs> Um, so, you are currently uh, a professor at Sussex University, um, mm-hmm. and you're, it's a professor of life sciences?
1: Yeah, that's a bit vague, and I mean, I, I specialise in bumblebees, that's what I've studied for the last 25 years, I've right. dabbled in other things, but they've been my main kind of passion. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so, yeah, um, uh, and... I don't, I, it's funny, I kind of stumbled into it, really. I, I've always loved insects. I don't know why. I mean, ever since I was, you know, five years old, I, I, when I, I remember collecting, you know, caterpillars and putting them in my kind of sandwich box after I'd eaten my lunch, you know, <laughs> taking them home and kind of re, trying to rear these poor things up in my bedroom <laughs> windowsill, you know. And I'm sure most of them probably died. But, um, but some of them didn't and, uh, and turned into beautiful moths, you know. Yes. And... Um, and I was yeah I don't know it's just like but then I think most kids or a lot of kids anyway go through a kind of bug phase where they they love insects dinosaurs or cool bugs yeah. or both you know yeah I mean all of my sons <laughs> three of the blighters they've all they're all well, they're all actually still quite into insects but the youngest is nine and he's he's really he's actually got pet stick insects amongst other things yes um, uh, but and and so I think it's actually a natural thing but. Most people grow out of it sadly, from my perspective, but I, I never did you know, and I managed to make a living out of chasing around after insects which
0: yeah.
1: which is a, a real privilege, I guess you know were um, your
0: parents it, very keen on it when you were young
1: they didn 't they, 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 they didn 't have any knowledge themselves of, okay. but they were happy to encourage me, you know well, they bought good. me books and and indulged me you know, on our family holidays i spent most of my time chasing around after butterflies and things they they were quite happy with that so yeah, yeah you know their dad was a history teacher mum was a pe teacher so they weren't in any way biologists at all but yeah. uh, um but yeah butterflies actually was i think being shallow and the, because they're so pretty that was actually the my kind of initial focus when i was a kid i was more into butterflies than anything else right but later on, in, I discovered the the joys of bumblebees. And, and actually, bees are much more interesting than butterflies. So butterflies are beautiful, mm. but kind of stupid, really. They're, <laughs> they're very simple creatures. You know, they have a very small brain and they do pretty basic stuff. Um, you know, they, they don't have complicated social lives or life cycles. Whereas bees are really interesting when you get into them okay. because they live in colonies, you know, they're social. They, they have, a, a, at least for some species, there's a queen. And there are workers, and there are all sorts of interesting kind of conflicts in in the nests and, uh, and they, they 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 have huge brains for insects. They're right. kind of like the intellectual giants of the insect world. <laughs> and they can they can learn all sorts of things, but they yes. can you know they can navigate miles across the landscape, they they memorize landmarks, tall trees and buildings and things, so they can find patches of flowers and then find their way back to their nest. And they basically just really smart and interesting creatures
0: so yes so that's, when, how old were you when you started to get into bumblebees then
1: i i was i was i was in my 20s when i really oh, right. so that, okay. this was relatively, you know relative, yeah still a fair while ago now but yeah. uh but yeah um that that was it was when i was i just i just got a permanent job at southampton university which is my first kind of proper academic post and uh um, and I, had the, I was, you know, really wanted to focus on butterfly conservation, that's, you know, rare butterflies and how to save them and that kind of stuff. Mm. But I couldn't get any any money, actually. It was, it was all very competitive. Money. <laughs> well, the universities, you have to get grants yeah, in. And I, I wrote these grant applications yeah. and none of them came off. And it kind of it, it occurred to me there were quite a few people studying butterflies already and maybe there was just too much competition, you know, too many well-established people in that area. And so I was a bit despondent, really, and I didn't quite know what to do with myself. Uh, but now, I was sitting in a, um, in a, in, in a nature reserve, just this, this place called the Itchin Valley Country Park, which is just north of Southampton, mm. and one day and I was just sort of idly watching, there was a patch of comfrey, which is really attracted to bumblebees, they love it. And there were loads of bees buzzing around and I was just kind of watching them and I noticed that, that this is something I thought was kind of cool or interesting, which is that basically if you, and you can see this in any garden, it doesn't have to be comfortable, any flower that's attracting lots of bees, if you watch what the bees are doing, they basically they fly from flower to flower of course, but they, they actually don't land on every flower. They'll very commonly, they'll fly up to a flower, get really close to it, mm. but at the last minute they'll veer off they'll, as if there's something wrong with it. And they'll do, they often do that two or three times before they land on a flower and, and you know, get their tongue out and drink the nectar. And I thought, well, what, what, you know, what are they doing? What's, what is it that's putting them off those flowers? And anyway, I, sp- I ended up spending five years, kind of, I had a PhD <laughs> student, Jane Stout and I. Um, to cut a very long story short, basically they, they fly up and they sniff the flower. Yes. And what they're sniffing it for is is any faint scent of a flower previous bumblebee visiting that flower because every time a bee lands on a flower she accidentally leaves behind a little kind of bit just as we leave a fingerprint on a glass yes they have oils on their cuticle on their feet and when they land on a flower they leave just a few little smears of those oils behind and that's a cue they're not leaving it deliberately but it, it basically signals to any subsequent bee that that is going to be empty because someone's recently landed and drunk the nectar. So there's no point wasting your time on that one. Oh. To skip it and find one that no one's landed on recently. Yeah. So that, you know, um, <laughs> sounds a bit trivial to spend five years doing that. But anyway, that's what, that's what we did. Yes. And, uh, but by the end of that, I was kind of hooked because I, I just thought the whole thing was quite fascinating.
0: Yeah.
1: And then I kind of, I guess from there I...
0: Is that where you've got your PhD? That I'd already got my PhD.
1: That was on butterflies, actually. That Uh was I did that. Um, Yeah, this was not long after after the PhD. Mm -hmm. I I got this academic post, and it was, but it it sort of academic posts are kind of interesting. Once you get, I was you're called a lecturer, and obviously you have to teach the students, but you're also supposed to develop a research program. But you can do what you whatever you want, really. I mean, so I was in a biology department, so I couldn't suddenly start study astrophysics or something. But basically, within I could have. You know, done more or less anything I wanted, which is great. But um, but as I say, I was a bit lost, and eventually, but then stumbled into bumblebees and never looked back. Stumbled um, into a bumble. Yeah. And
0: all these years later, I have to ask this question. Sorry. Do you still get a buzz out of a mm. bumblebee?
1: <laughs> Very good. <laughs> uh, no. no uh, yeah. No, I love them. I mean, uh, this time of year is nice actually, because this first sunny day of pretty much we've had this year, um, and although we're inside recording this at the moment, I bet you the first queen bumblebees of the year will be buzzing around in the garden. Yeah. There's a a pussy willow that usually comes into flower any second. Or my little almond tree over there that's in blossom. Um, And probably if we went outside and had a look, we'd see these big fat queens that have been hibernating for the last six, seven months um, buzzing about. And that is always for me, you know, the kind of just just the sign that winter's finally come to an end and it's just yeah, it's really cool yeah um,
0: very exciting yeah why is it that they're out first then the queens is it
1: they well, so that they, they need to they they need as long as possible to build a nest to produce more queens and right. um, before the season ends uh-huh. so they come out as early as they can and the reason they're big is to help keep they're big and furry to keep warm so bumblebees are kind of cold climate specialist insects if you look at where bumblebees are found in the world you don't get them in warm climates yeah. so most insects tend to be most common there are most species of say butterfly or dragonfly or a grasshopper in the tropics and mediterranean areas and they get fewer and fewer as you head towards the poles but bumblebees are the opposite they they're at their most kind of numerous in cold wet places like Britain um, okay. right up in high up in the mountains in, in the Alps and the Himalayas and right up into the Arctic Circle you get bumblebees Goodness there's, a bum, there's a bumblebee called Bombus Polaris which is oh. you know, the polar bumblebee which l- lives its whole life cycle north of the Arctic Circle um, so basically they're big and furry to keep warm it's yes. just, they're, they're kind of uh, so they're unusual insects in that they generate heat internally in their flight muscles by flapping their wings. Okay. And then they keep that heat in with a furry coat. And the bigger you are, the easier it is to keep warm. So the these big fat queens are basically well adapted to early spring weather. Yes, And they can fly around. So if, if, you, if you could measure the temperature inside at one of these queen bumblebees, um, it would It would be between about thirty and thirty five degrees centigrade, even when it's the air temperature outside today is about warm at the moment or maybe up to two or three by now but yeah. but so it 's really quite amazing that they it can is. they can maintain such a you know an elevated body temperature and uh, but that means they can fly around, they can gather food, they can build a nest, and they can basically get get there they even incubate their brood, they sit on it and shiver to keep it warm, just oh like a bird gosh. Um, and uh, yeah, so hopefully, you know, they'll all be out and about and uh, building nests very soon.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Um, I know that uh, you've uh, also got around the gardens uh, bee hotels because you have a YouTube uh, presence, and um, I know that bee hotels are part of your uh, eco-friendly yeah. Friendly, yeah there's here. lots of
1: I, 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 if anyone's interested, check out my YouTube site for lots of silly videos about garden flowers. For, for bees and butterflies and be how to make bee hotels and yeah. hoverfly lagoons and various other things yes um but yeah i've got probably i don't know 20 bee hotels dotted around most half of them homemade probably yeah. more um and a few professional ones that people have given me yes. um uh, but they're great fun um Uh, so bee hotels are not for bumblebees they're for solitary bees many many people have no idea of the distinction and get a bit confused and think that bee hotels are for bumblebees so bumblebees are the most common wild bees that you'll see big colorful usually furry creatures but actually what the, the 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 majority of of our wild bee species about 200 we've got about 270 species of bee in the uk about 25 of oh them are different types of bumblebee and then there's the honeybee which lives in a hive and makes honey yeah but then all the others so so about nearly 250 species are solitary bees and they tend to be smaller and most of the time people never even notice no them. but they're the ones that go in the bee hotels oh. um so solitary bees are lots of different species and there's there are all sorts of there's Mason bees, mining bees, yellow-faced bees, cuckoo bees, carpenter bees—all—they're all different types of solitary bee. Lots more as well, um, uh, and they. So each female bee makes her own little nest. Yes. Uh, and some of them, um, particularly mason bees, like to nest in in horizontal holes, uh-huh. um, and naturally would probably mainly nest in. Um, in dead tree trunks with, where, where beetles have burrowed and left holes, or maybe in the hollow stems of things like bramb- old bramble stems that have snapped off where they can climb inside. Mm. Um, but in the sort of modern tidy world, there aren't many dead rotting trees oh, okay. and that kind of thing. So right. they struggle to find anywhere to nest. Okay. But actually, if, so that's what bee hotels are providing, these, these mason bees, with somewhere to go. Yes.
3: Um,
1: and so all they really consist of is, is holes, and you can make them so easily with just if you've got a lump of wood and a drill Mm. roughly an eight millimeter drill bit and drill as many holes as deep as you can um, horizontal holes and stick it on a a fence or my dog's barking outside stick it on a fence (laughs) or or a wall south facing ideally and um with luck you'll end up with some some of these mason bees will move in, and if they do, then they'll quickly kind of proliferate over a, a few years. There's only one generation a year of them, but uh, but now I've, I've my hotels are usually full yes. um, and I have hundreds of these uh, mason bees wow. uh, buzzing around in the spring. lovely little reddish bees. They come out in sort of march, April, may um, and then if there are any holes left in your bee hotel mm. in uh, June, July, you get leafcutter bees which are also solitary mm. um and uh they um kind of will f- take over any remaining holes and they they're called leafcutter bees because they line the holes with little semicircles of leaves that they snip and then they sew them together with silk they make their own silk and make Goodness, these little leafy so tubes the, one th- thing that i would recommend if anyone's feeling like feeling rich is to um Uh, there are designs of bee hotel commercial ones with windows on the side so you can see what's happening inside the nest and they're brilliant for kids my um my my kids when they were younger really liked peeking because you just do to peek inside and you can see this particularly the mason bees um which tend to be the most common ones they they but in in the tunnel they basically they'll make a pile of bright yellow pollen yeah. and lay an egg on it right at the bottom of the hole to start with. Right. And then they go off and they collect some damp clay and they make a little wall to seal that one in and then they repeat it over and over again so you get this beautiful little little succession of piles of yellow pollen with a little grub developing and a little clay wall oh. right until the hole is full and then they'll find another hole and they just keep backwards and forwards. Right. Um, and they... So in in most insects, the males like to emerge before the females so that they're ready to kind of pounce on the virgin females as soon as they come out. Um, And in mason bees, obviously the, the order that they can emerge is determined by the Basically, the one at the bottom of the hole can't go out until everybody else has gone out.
2: (laughs) Wait your (laughs) turn. So the the mother
1: uh, lays female eggs at the bottom of the holes and male eggs at the top, so that that the males can get out first. It's kind of cool. Incredible.
0: Um,
1: And and, I mean, you know, obviously humans have no control over the gender of their offspring, but but bees are much cleverer than us, and they they have absolute control. They can, yeah, yeah. Can they? It's. um, clever
0: very clever yeah. they are bright aren't they so this but the solitary bees don't have a so- social organization then is that is no that right? so there's they, no queen there are no
1: workers oh, it's okay. just a female bee right on her own makes a nest um, and there are males buzzing around trying to mate with them, and the, most of the time the females are not interested because they just the males are just an annoyance. Um, but the <laughs> males familiar. don't collect any The <laughs> males don't collect any food or do anything useful. Right. They just there for sex. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the females do all the nest building and everything on their own. Yes. Um,
0: all the housework.
1: Exactly the whole the whole lot. Give it lot. to
0: me. I know. There you go. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's a hard life being female. It is. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. What else can I tell you about solitary bees? Um,
0: what do they pollinate? What's their role? Because the bumblebees clear. Oh, the honeybees are the ones in the hives.
1: Yeah, honeybees. Honeybees are in are the ones that people keep. Right. Um, they're um, uh, all over the world, and the honeybee is kind of the probably the commonest bee species. Um, and sometimes you hear honeybee keepers claiming that honeybees pollinate everything which is not true okay. i mean honeybees are really important but they, they 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 definitely don't pollinate everything there are some and different flowers tend to be pollinated by different um different types of pollinators It not just bees there are also hoverflies and wasps and beetles and all sorts of uh, moths and butterflies that all pollinate too yeah um and different flowers have evolved with different insects over millennia. Um, uh, So, for example, foxgloves are only pollinated in the UK, but really by two species of of bumblebee, which have evolved long tongues that that enable them to reach the nectar. So in a foxglove, the nectar is hidden at the top of the kind of bell of the flower. Yes. And most bumblebees and almost all other insects can't reach the nectar, so they don't visit foxgloves. Oh, okay. and likewise, some things like honeysuckle is is mainly moth pollinated. It's evolved with moths, and that's why it's scented because the moths are flying at night, and that helps to guide them to to the flowers in the dark. Right. Um, solitary bees tend tend to pollinate, they're very good pollinators of uh, fruit trees for example, um, the, the mason bees that live in the bee hotels are one of the best pollinators of apples um, oh. and some forward-thinking um, uh, fruit growers these days are actually putting up bee hotels to specifically uh-huh. encourage mason bees and it, there was a recent study that showed that mason, one mason bee can pollinate as many apple flowers as roughly 100 honeybees Um, so they're they're pretty good at it um but it just depends on on the on the on the plant you know every plant's got a is best pollinated by a particular insect or group of insects and so we really need to look after all of them if we want to make sure that all the flowers and all the crops get properly yeah pollinated so we you know we need to keep this kind of diversity of yes insects rather than just relying on say honeybees to do everything yeah and Um, a
0: diversity of of the flowers as well, I guess, because, you know, the two are dependent, aren't they? Yeah,
1: completely. I mean, you know, flowers only have, uh, flowers aren't, didn't appear to look pretty to people, you know, um, flowers evolved millions of years ago, um, to attract insects. Yes. And, um, roughly for nearly 90% of all plant species on earth are, um, pollinated by an animal of some sort usually an insect often a bee maybe right. some other kind of insect occasionally in, if you're in South America it might be a hummingbird um, but most of the time it's a, it's an insect right. um, so if you took away the pollinators then basically 90% of all plant species on earth would, would, would wouldn't be able to set seed and would eventually disappear yeah. um, so you know the, 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 that kind of relationship between insects and plants is kind of at the heart of everything you know if, you, if that were to break down then yes. it would be absolutely catastrophic for, for all life on earth yeah um,
0: and do you feel we're becoming more and more divorced from that kind of knowledge and that um well
1: people i it worries me that people have become kind of detached from where food comes from generally you know a worrying number of people kids growing up you know they don't know how to germinate seeds they don't know how to base the really basics of growing their own food they don't understand and i guess it's partly because obviously most people these days live in cities um i think we're nearly at 80 percent in the uk living in cities now and it's increasing every year Mm. and so people just don't you know they don't really encounter nature. They don't see where food comes from. They just kind of think it just somehow materializes in the supermarket, you know, in a, in a polystyrene box with a plastic film over the top or whatever, and 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 are divorced from, you know, we are wherever you live, we are still connected to nature. We do still need pollinators and all the other creatures that kind of make the world, um, you know, keep turning. Mm. Um, but people don't see it because they don't encounter it in their own lives and and so they don't appreciate the need to look after the environment sadly and i think i mean things are changing where it's a really interesting point in history at the moment i think mm. where finally i hope people are waking up to the fact that you know we are th- threatening our own existence by not looking after the planet properly i mean yes. in all sorts of ways Climate change is perhaps the most obvious, but the loss of biodiversity, the disappearance of bees and other insects and and of all wildlife is, is another really important kind of facet of that, along with, you know, soil erosion and flooding and pollution and all these other, you know, the rainforest being chopped down and all these other issues. But people I think are finally... Yes. realizing yeah. but you know we all, we're at
0: a point yeah if
1: we just carry on as we have done you know it's going to be a disaster for everybody and the next generation is going to inherit a pretty miserable world you know where where kind of most of the natural resources have been used up or polluted and where most of the kind of natural beauty has gone you know the, yes. with the, there aren't butterflies and birds and so on yeah. Which would be, I mean, you know, what a thing to do to your children and grandchildren, you know, what yes. on earth are we thinking of?
3: Yeah.
1: Um, it's mad that we don't take, you know, we only have one earth, like it or not, you know, we're not, people somehow think that technology can solve all of our problems and maybe we'll just jet off to live on Mars or whatever, you know, mm. um, if we've, when we've completely messed up our own planet. Well, we won't, you know, there's no way that no. that's going to happen anytime in the foreseeable future. This is our only planet and we should look after it, and it's yeah. sort of beggars belief that we can't see that and yes. appreciate it and take it more seriously. And so, I mean, it's as I say, it's great. You know, you've got Extinction Rebellion, you've got it, all sorts of things going on around the world, showing signs that people finally are, are, are waking up. You know, yes. politi- in, the, in the British election, we had politicians vying with each other to promise how many trees they were going to plant. Yes. It, was, it was a bit <laughs> daft, and, and I don't think they really thought through any of the practicalities and and knee jerk tree planting is probably not the answer i'm all for more trees but you don't just want any trees anywhere
3: No.
1: but those issues aside it was really interesting that actually mainstream politicians were talking about an environmental issue for a change in an election rather than it just being immigration and the health service and that kind of thing yes um and even things like um you know, the David Attenborough series in the last few have been so much harder hitting than yes. they used to be. You know, it used to be just beautiful nature doing beautiful things. Yes. Um, now, it's beautiful nature and then some terribly traumatic footage of, you know, an albatross chick vomiting up plastic. or yes. yes. Or, some, you know, something that just makes you weep. But they didn't used to show that on BBC because it was deemed, I don't know, people wouldn't want to see it, it was too unpleasant. People were just turned off by those kind of things. And now... It's obviously the perception has changed. Yeah. People do want to see it. They want to know what the hell's happening to their yes, planet and, yes. and get involved in doing something about Absolutely.
0: it. Absolutely, and sort of feeling they can actually yeah. do something about it. I
1: mean, it. obviously the flip side is there's also, you know, Trump and and global politics and inequality still going in the wrong direction. And so, some, you know, I don't know, I, impossible to predict the future at this point in history but but it just feel like we're kind of at some kind of tipping point or something
0: it's and, certainly out there in in kind of like the consciousness isn't it yeah, I mean people yeah. are aware of it they're talking about it and there's a lot more on the media about it and people writing books
1: yeah 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 <laughs> back to the books yeah well so that basically yeah. come full circle on yeah. that conversation the the, yeah. the book is is one of the ways I'm you know trying to engage. So it often seems to me that, yes, there are people marching, you know, protesting, shouting on social media and in the streets about these environmental issues. But there's still an awful lot of people we've yet to to engage that haven't actually realised the importance of of their own decisions and behaviour and so on. And somehow we need to, I think, we need to get to... You know, it's probably, it might still be 90% of the population that don't really think about the environment at all. Mm. Um, and somehow we need to engage with them. And, the, you know, things like using YouTube and yeah. writing books and whatever is, you know, hopefully chips away slowly at that kind of, the, that, those people and wins a few over each time. Yeah. That's the
3: idea.
0: When you were at school, did um, did anybody there? You know, was your interest in biology and insects and so on was that fostered there? Were you? Do you feel you were encouraged there? Because again, school and education is another way forward for the next generation.
1: Yeah, kind of... I had a really nice um, primary school teacher, Miss Scott. Um, she's dead now, sadly, but uh, uh, she 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 loved nature and she. We did loads of pond dipping, which I think my love of ponds came from. Mm from then um, we had a, in the classroom was you know we had loads of fish tanks with dragonfly larvae and tadpoles and all sorts of things um no goldfish no goldfish <laughs> <laughs> maybe a few sticklebacks from the local canal <laughs> but uh, um uh and yeah and I, I think uh, and that certainly certainly helped um secondary school was was i don't remember being terribly inspiring at all really but okay. uh, in that respect, anyway, but, you did but it sciences, would be great.
0: You specialised in science, yeah, did I liked you? science,
1: I liked biology and so on. But I do, I do think it would be nice. Um, uh, so one thing that Caroline Lucas that, uh, has been pushing for is um, a GCSE in natural history or something like that to have more about the environment and nature taught formally in schools right i mean ideally right from the beginnings of primary school through secondary education because um you know having just watched my own kids go through secondary school they don't learn much about this i mean they do biology but most of it is about you know cell and molecular stuff and genetics and so on they learn precious little about the environment and nature right and, and all the kind of both important environmental stuff and the sort of inspiring beautiful side of natural history they don't really cover yeah um
0: which is a shame because as you said earlier when people when the kids are younger they've got all this enthusiasm yeah. because it's kind of there in front of them isn't yeah, it you know yeah. finding words and they love
1: and stuff they can grab and hold <laughs> and look at and you know um actually have a wood lice in the palm of their hand or yeah. whatever and, they, and they, they, they're, they're fascinated by that and they, I think it's. It seems to me, anyway, that that schools these days, you know, they're too constrained by the curriculum, and also there's a bit of a catch twenty two in that a lot of the teachers don't know anything about natural history themselves, right? Um, and so, how can they inspire the kids? Yes. You know, so really, it would be it would be great if you know if government would fund some kind of, you know, continuing professional development for teachers, so they could go off and you know do a residential week course about you know learning about nature so that they could then take that back and and use it to inspire the kids. I can um, see
0: the Goulson lab is going to be busy. Yeah yeah something <laughs> like that um,
1: it would it just just you know um, it would be nice if if kids from an early age not just nature but also stuff like growing things you yes. know the basics of how does a plant grow and how to how to grow a crop how to grow some cabbages or runner beans or whatever yes which I mean kind of I th- sort of I used to think was just something everybody kind of automatically would learn somehow. But actually, I talked to to students at university and many of them have never grown a single plant in their life. They have no idea, you know, they they just, I mean, (laughs) it's sort of what seems almost unbelievable that someone would not know how to plant a bean. Mm. But they don't, you know, they might kind of work it out but they'd actually have just never done it
0: did your parents garden in that way did they have a vegetable yeah my dad garden? my dad
1: had a veggie patch um I, they didn't yeah. pay so much attention to flowers but no. but dad was keen on his veggies so yeah. I, I helped him when i was a kid and so i somewhere i absorbed you know the the how to do it kind of from from him um, yeah. i guess i can't remember when i you know but it's just one of those things when you're, you certainly if you're lucky enough to have parents that are that can teach you. You just kind of learn it, don't you, without yes. knowing you're learning it. Yeah. Um, but it's really sad, I think, that that uh, that so many kids don't get that chance. And uh, you know, wouldn't it be great if every school had a, had its own little kind of allotment veggie oh, patch yes. and and some flowers for pollinators and yes. a pond and yes. all these kind of things? It would, you know it was, it seems to me that that would be a great thing for government to try to aspire to. It may not always be possible, or in some inner city places, I guess the land just isn't there, but um, but generally speaking, um, I'm sure it ought to be possible for yeah. most schools to be pr- to find some outdoor space where they could, you know, um, get the kids involved in. There's a fantastic school I visited recently in Greenwich where the headmaster is really into bees amongst other things. And oh, it's primary, a, a primary primary oh, school in in East London, you right. know, and they keep honeybees and he teaches that they have miniature bee seeds for the kids. Oh. And they, But they also have chickens and they have a vegetable patch and they have a wildflower patch and, and so on. And it's, it's absolutely brilliant. You know, yes. those kids are growing up learning about these things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, sadly, it's, that only happens if you've got a really kind of inspiring teacher who decides, he's, you know, they're going to make it happen. Yes. Um, there's not really any kind of central support for that. And, and so, it, you know, most schools, it just doesn't happen.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah so at a level what did you study what were your um subjects at a level
1: um maths chemistry biology fairly okay. kind of
0: and um, did you always know you wanted to go on then and do biology was that your next yeah
1: I, I well I had an idea of being a vet because I, I remember I remember talking to you know a careers advisor when I was in sixth form or maybe it was even earlier than that and uh and and you know, I, I loved animals. I loved biology, and the kind of stock suggestion in that point was, "Oh well, you should be a vet then," because they—I ju- mean—I don't think the careers advisor even knew there was such a thing as scientific research, or, or you know, I mean, the idea that you could be paid to chase around after bees and butterflies just never evolve. never occurred to me. <laughs> um, and so, so, so I thought about being a vet, and I I actually volunteered at the Saturday mornings with the local vet to find out a bit more about it, and he managed to put me off completely. Hated being a vet. It was quite funny, sad.
0: Why was uh, that? Is it because it was basically mammals, or, uh, or
1: it was just it, it, No, he he didn't like it because oh. um, uh, because it was. I mean, he spent a lot of his. T- it was most of the decisions were commercial, so with farm mm. animals, right. you know, there'd be a cow that was perfectly fixable, but it was too expensive. So, bang, you know, that would be the end of the cow. Um, and, and, uh, and it was also very repetitive, you know, fertilising thousands of cows and right. artificially and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, it just wasn't, you know, I'd read all the James Herriot books as a kid and and <laughs> a real vetting was nothing like that, basically. No. <laughs> and and it just, I, I think just the fact that the, the guy I was kind of working, shadowing, as it were, didn't like it himself completely. Well, maybe that was a good off.
0: thing because it, it set was. you in another yeah, direction. Yeah,
1: yeah, So I thought, OK, well, I, my favourite subject is biology. I'll do a biology degree because what else am I going to do? Right. But really without any idea where I would go with that. Um, and I had... I mean I guess I really wanted to work in kind of conservation rather than research initially Mm. Um, so I had I did a degree and then I had this idea that that um, you know I'd get a job I don't know you know as a sort of nature reserve warden or a ranger or something but I actually found it impossible to get a job like that and uh, so I stumbled into a a PhD. Um, so
0: you 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 went to Oxford for your. Degree. I was an undergrad
1: at Oxford Uni. Yeah. Um, how
0: was how were your three? Was it three years? You three did years, there? Yeah. yeah. Did you enjoy that?
1: Yeah, I found it a bit. I I I guess I was the the. It was a bit traumatic going away from home and right. uh, and I didn't. I, I, it's, perhaps it's changed a bit, but I'm not sure, I don't know whether it has. But Oxford University was, I, I didn't go to a private school or anything, you know, a, pu- mm. a fancy public school. Mm. Um, and I did struggle slightly to fit in with the kind of super confident public school types that still dominated back then, certainly. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know, it was a, it, it's a lovely city to, to be in. Yeah. And, uh, um, and there were some really interesting uh, teachers, you know, lecturers in the department that are doing yes. quite amazing stuff.
0: And were you, um, were you interested in butterflies at that point? Was yeah, that was yeah. Still... I did
1: a kind of undergraduate project on butterflies, okay. and, and uh, in in place called Burnwood Forest, which is just east of Oxford. Which it's actually kind of a sad place in 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 many ways because it. Um, in the first half of the 20th century, it was famous for its butterflies. It was the richest place for butterflies in Britain, more species of butterfly than anywhere. It had all sorts of rare species like Duke of Burgundy fritillaries and purple emperors and brown hair streaks and all these things that you never see. Mm. Um, but it, so I did my PhD out there on on um, uh, on, on butterflies. But actually, what it, it was, it, it had basically been completely messed up by the forestry commission who used to be pretty des- they're much better now i believe mm-hmm. but basically in the 90s this i mean amazing ancient woodland full of wildlife they clear felled almost the entire lot in about 1950 and then they then they aerial sprayed it with herbicide to just try and kill everything oh goodness. Um, this this you know it's hard to believe now but this but this you know that's what they did back then yeah um and, and, and then it was all planted with, um, spruce trees, you know, but just a great conifer plantation. So it's um, like
0: monoculture, new. Yeah, basically. No variety. Uh,
1: anyways, it, it, it was, it was kind of, it but it's still amazing. He had quite a lot of butterflies.
0: Oh.
1: Not, I mean, not obviously as many as it used to, but it's, some had hung on around the edges. Um, anyway, that's, that's kind of, um, uh, yeah, it was, there. it was, it was, it was, fun time anyway and mm. I kind of enjoyed my undergrad and then PhD chasing around after insects even if there were times a bit sad to see that there weren't as many as perhaps there should have been mm. but uh, um, but yeah that was that was, I, so I, I basically did the first degree in biology didn't know what to do afterwards couldn't get a job mm. so then I saw this PhD which was also on on butterflies in in Burnwood Forest again mm-hmm. where I'd done my undergrad project so I thought well I'll, it seemed rude not to apply it was almost as if it'd been written for me <laughs> yes
0: for Dave um, Dawson <laughs> and that was at Oxford
1: Poly as it was then okay uh but I was basically in Oxford for about 10 years rattling around one way or another oh right um and then eventually um
0: so you got your doctorate there yeah and then
1: I did a little post for a couple of years in in a a place called the the Institute for Virology and Environmental Microbiology in the middle of Oxford, mm. which was a hideous place. Right. I, I the worst two years of my life. I was doing research on uh, how to kill moths with oh. these viruses that kind of make the caterpillars dissolve oh, from dear. the inside. It was gruesome. Um, yeah kind of
0: completely against your whole outlook it
1: was, it was just a job oh. um, but then thankfully I, I landed the job at Southampton and, yes. and, and eventually just moved on to bumblebees and, yes. and was a clever happily bumblebee. ever after yeah, basically. brilliant
0: okay and then I know that in 2009 you re- uh, released an academic textbook about bees is that right?
1: uh the first version of it was two thousand and three actually oh, but no well, the they came there was like a second edition oh, that okay. came out later so
0: and that was for university students presumably was it? It,
1: it, any it's readable by anybody okay. but it really is this kind of academic text so it's i guess it's probably aimed at sort of. PhD students studying bees or whatever primarily or people really you'd have to be fairly seriously interested in bumblebees to want to read it.
0: Yes I have to work towards that.
1: Yeah I mean it's not it's not it's not as dry and boring as some academic texts but it's 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 not a light read it's not full of jokes or you know laughs. Um,
0: But you've written a couple of books well several books since then and would it be right to say they're sort of more popular in tone? Because I know that you wrote one called The Sting in the Tail. Yeah,
1: so that was my first popular sort of science book. Yeah. Um, which is kind of all the interesting and fun bits about bumblebees written in a way that anyone can, yes. can read. Yeah. Um, and that, that I, I mean, I didn't, um, I didn't have any idea if I'd even get it published. You know, I just wrote it for fun. Mm. Um, and actually, couldn't find a publisher for ages, mm. and and it nearly, it could easily have never got published because it, it took me a few years, and I didn't really understand that with, because, so with academic textbooks, you just kind of approach the publishers and say, you know, I think there's a gap in the market for a, a boring book on, you know, scientific book about bumblebees, and they say, mm, yeah, we agree, mm. and would off you go write it for us, but with popular mainstream publishing you have to have an agent and I didn't I haven't got a clue how how would I find an agent what is an agent I didn't know it's secret Um, well yes it sounds like James Bond or something (laughs) <laughs> um anyway, I, I it took me ages to find an agent that thought this book a Sting in the Tail was worth publishing and uh, Was that like, your
0: title? A Sting in the Tail. How did you come yeah, up with that? It's a yeah.
1: great title. Yeah, it was I have been struggling to find as good a title ever since but, oh. uh, uh, for any of my subsequent books. But anyway, it got published in the end, thank, thankfully. Yeah. And and did really well. I got it got shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize and yes. made it into the bestseller lists and and, and um, so I I sort of thought well I, I should continue you know yes. it seems to and actually in, in many ways it's more so one of the f- things I eventually got frustrated with about being an academic in a sort of normal I mean you know the normal job of being a university professor is to you deliver some lectures and do you know you do your teaching and you do your research and you publish it in academic journals, yes. which only a handful of people ever read, you know, a few people in your narrow field might read your very boring scientific papers about <laughs> bumblebees. And I so I'd started, I, I, when I'd finished all the stuff about bees and the scents they leave on flowers, I started, I got sort of shifted into why they were declining, because I'd, I'd read some older books about bumblebees and they... Talked about all these species that I just couldn't find anymore. You know, there are 26 right. ish species in the UK, but around Southampton I could find about six or seven species. But the, and I looked on the old maps and it seemed like they should have been in Hampshire. So I was like, well, where have they gone? You know, what yes. have yeah. so I started going on field trips to try to places like Salisbury Plain where there were still a few of these rare species left right. and trying to work out why they'd vanished from most of the countryside. And that's kind of um. then became my focus for 20 years um Um, but and we published lots of papers about why bumblebees were declining it basically comes down to a kind of combination of loss of flower rich habitats and you know the, the hay meadows that we used to have lots of and that kind of thing which most of which were plowed up in the 20th century and the loss of hedgerows and the use of pesticides and so on and so on but so we were studying this stuff and publishing it in pretty you know, in these dry scientific journals that nobody reads. Mm. And I told them, well, what's the point of this? You know, it's not actually helping the bees if I write another boring paper about them. Um, and so so the, 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 the book, as well as being a bit of fun, was kind of trying to reach a bigger audience, you know, yes. and trying to, again, to kind of engage people with, kind of caring for these, yes. these creatures. Um, I mean,
0: bees are something that people do feel very positive towards, apart, from the, apart from the sting in the tail. But uh, yeah. they're... Uh, you know, I think most of us are aware that there was a bee virus and there was a huge drop in numbers. I mean, that's I, you're the expert. You'll you'll know to correct me on that. But you know, that's the we're we're aware that bees are. Um, most people up know that something it. is wrong with the bees. Yeah.
1: Something's up with the bees. <laughs> uh, they're very confused generally as to what is up with the bees, right. and and that's partly reflects the fact that, that there's still sort of scientific debate about what's causing bee declines mm. um, i mean but, so, uh, but there are several different issues one is relates specifically to honeybees you know so honeybees again are the commercial bees that you know give us honey and that beekeepers keep in boxes and in some parts of the world it's it's almost in, an industrial thing you know in north america there are are beekeepers with tens of thousands of hives um, and they move them around the country on lorries from one crop to the next when they're flowering and so on it's it's kind of a strange business to us because people beekeepers in europe don't really do that no Um, anyway in about 2006 there was um, a a thing called colony collapse disorder ccd is sometimes called Kind of struck particularly in the Americas, but to some extent in Europe and it basically thousands of honeybee hives died mm. um, and many of them died in a slightly odd way in that the, basically the bees just disappeared they weren't like a, it wasn't a pile of dead bees in the nest or anything it was just you know the beekeeper would check his hive and it would all be fine and then he'd come back a couple of months later to check it again and there was just abandoned brood and no adult bees left right. um uh, so and that that's essentially this sort of slightly mysterious colony collapse disorder and it was all over the newspapers and and so on got and, and that helped to kind of raise the profile of these bee issues mm. There's still debate as to exactly what caused it and it, it's sort of it's still ongoing but the, not as bad as it was in
3: 2006
1: 2007 mm. but most scientists kind of eventually came to the conclusion that it was a combination of factors that it was probably a mix of There's a thing called the Varroa mite, which is a parasite that came from Asia um, We accidentally brought them into Europe and the Americas and um, and that's a parasite of honeybees but it spreads viruses as vectors viruses from bee to B mm. and it's the viruses that do most of the harm if they're spread by them the, the mite and then also um, pesticides impair the immune system of the bees, so that the virus does much more harm if the bees got a little dose of, of insecticide. That it, it might have been able to cope with the virus if it was hadn't been poisoned as well. So basically, if you poison them and then they're infected via this mite biting them with a virus, it's they put good. it all together, <laughs> and the poor things. It's not really surprising if they die. No. Um, and you know, all of these things are basically things that we've brought about, you yes. know, carelessly, yeah. stupidly, one way or another. Yes. So so this, this sort of mysterious honeybee death kind of issue caused a, got a lot of attention. Mm. But then there's also a kind of growing evidence that wild bees are disappearing, particularly bumblebees, which people tend to do, mm. they tend to be uh, more studied than the other, the solitary wild bees. Mm. Um, and we know that many of our bumblebees, as I say, have basically disappeared from big chunks of the countryside, places where, you know, they used to be found. We know, for example, around here, you know, 100 years ago, you'd have easily found 16 or 17 species of bumblebee. Mm. Um, and now, you know, probably half of those have disappeared. Really? Um, uh, so it, it's a sort of combination of, you um, the commercial bees dying, the wild bees disappearing, and a lot of the media keeps sort of picking up these stories and sometimes confusing the two issues because they're kind of slightly separate issues, you know, the fate of domestic bees and, and wild bees. But all they're all basically being affected by the same things, not enough flowers, too many pesticides, mm. spreading diseases that we've... We've accidentally moved around the world and so on, mm. um, but you know, one way or another, we need to we need to sort it out and and um, make sure they don't continue to decline because yeah. if they do, we're in trouble.
0: Yes. So your your next book was then in 2014. That was a buzz in the meadow. Mm.
1: Um. Yeah. So that's that's um, back in 2003. I bought a little old, very, rundown farm um in france mm-hmm. basically with it's got 33 acres of field mm. um i couldn't afford basically to buy anywhere with any land in the uk it's too expensive but in yes. france it's very cheap still mm. um and so i basically bought it with the idea of it, it was it was just an arable farm um when i bought it oh. um had been
0: working as an yeah
1: arbor? yeah the guy i bought it from had Farmed it his whole life, okay. basically. Crop, um, what
0: was he growing? So obviously Well, the, a the, arable,
1: but... he'd sold off some of the other fields um, previously, and it was a it was a mix. There was some pasture, uh. um, and he had some dairy cows, but he'd sold all he'd sold those off some years earlier. And the the, the last thirty three acres that I bought was just arable. It was uh. um, I think wheat was the last crop he grew. Um, but I basically set about trying to turn it into a wildflower meadow to try and kind of put back a little bit of the. You know, the the flowers... Because we used to have basically millions and millions of hectares of of hay meadows in Europe. Mm. Um, Just in Britain, there was about 7 million million acres of hay meadows 100 years ago. Mm. And 98% of them were destroyed in the 20th century.
0: Really? Virtually
1: all, basically. Um, So
0: we've got very few.
1: Yeah. um, And so so I thought it'd be nice to recreate some, you know, put some back. Yeah. so ever since, basically, for the, last, for the last 18 years, I've been trying to kind of turn that field into as, as flowery a meadow as I can right. in various ways. Um, mainly just by ha- treating it as a hay meadow and having it, there's a local goat farmer who comes in and cuts the hay once a year. Okay. Um, and no chemicals go on anymore, no fertilizers, no pesticides. And I have sown some wildflower seeds and so on as well, but, but, but the book is basically about... About this meadow and about the creatures that now live there and and my efforts to kind of you know um, restore it to something like what what it might once have been yeah, um, and it's
0: again another lovely name, a buzz in the meadow, because um then I looked at something on youtube you 've done, and you took film i don 't know if it was in france the the meadow uh, grasses, and there was a buzz you yeah. birds there was such there was a, i mean no one was talking on it. But you could just hear the wildlife in that meadow, and then every now and then you'd cut to a uh, wheat field. A wheat field, was it? And it was beautiful, but it was just silent. Yeah, I know. And then cut back to the meadow again, and it was it it, just the life in it was extraordinary.
1: Yeah, it just makes you realise what's missing. You know, I mean, it's sadly true that. You know, most of those, that 98% of of destroyed hay meadows were replaced by these, you know, big monocultures of either an an arable crop like wheat or barley or whatever, or silage fields, so basically um, rye grass, which is an equally boring monoculture of grass, basically. Um, And you you go and stand in one of those fields and you just, there's no life at all. There's just the crop, Mm. really nothing else um you know um it's, and we've done that to to vast areas i mean I, I i um where i where i work at the university of sussex is on the edge of the south downs mm. people think of the south downs as you know beautiful and and perhaps associate them with you know flower rich chalk downland or but there's hardly any rich chalk downland. there's a few little nature reserves left most of it is giant fields of arable crops with just no wildlife in them at all, sadly. Mm. Mm. Um, anyway, yeah, but it doesn't have to be that way. And, you know, we, we, I think, I mean, not only can we restore, restore some of these lovely flower-rich meadows, but also we need to find ways of growing the crops That simultaneously support life, you know, that aren't kind of this this idea that nature and food production they seem to have become mutually exclusive. You either have one or the other.
0: Yeah, very Um, uh, sort of in conflict with each other. Yeah, absolutely
1: in conflict. Well, I mean, you know, the biggest driver of wildlife declines in Britain is industrial farming, without a doubt. You know, seventy percent of the country is farmed, and nearly all of that's intensive farming with a blizzard of pesticides. On average, each crop. Gets treated just over seventeen with seventeen different pesticides. Goodness um, gracious! Or it could be the same pesticide seventeen times. Yeah. But one way or another, it's a lot of chemicals. <gasps> yes. And it's a whole mix, you know, insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, molluscicides. Um, it's not surprising, you know, we don't that our wildlife is in decline. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't have to be like that, you know. What and 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 it, in a way that brings us back to to the garden because one of the things we. I've been doing some work on allotments with, um, I had a postdoc, Beth Nichols, still lives in Brighton. Um, and allotments are really interesting because allotments um, can produce lots of food if the allotmenter is kind of fairly competent and has the time. <laughs> um, obviously they don't all. Um, but also there was, there was some, a recent really nice study that showed that insect life on allotments is, is one of the richest places for insect life. Um, there is richer than any other urban habitat, better than gardens, better than city parks, better even than nature reserves in cities. Right. Um, there's loads of insects in allotments, which actually, if you look in an allotment, is not that surprising because they're all higgledy-piggledy. There's loads of different plants, flowers, vegetables, weeds. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they, to some eyes, they might look like a bit of a mess, but actually, that nature likes that kind of
0: yes, mixed, slight disorder.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so you can produce food and yeah. have nature in the same place. Yeah. Um, and if in a, it's sort of there are scaled up sort of commercial examples of that. Where, so for example, in um, Forest Row, not so far from here, there's a there's a biodynamic farm called Plaw Hatch, which is um, has a great big kind of vegetable section, which looks like an allotment, really a bit more professional than an allotment, but you know it 's full of insect life it's all organic, and yeah. um, there are lots of people work there they have about twenty five people involved in growing and selling pesticide free food to local people have a farm shop. Mm. Um and you know that places like that make you realize that actually you can look after nature and grow food at the same time. We don't have to mess up the planet to feed everybody.
3: Yeah. Um
1: and so I you know I kind of quite passionate about trying to trying to redirect campaign to to change the way we farm and mm. the way we see food production away from this kind of industrial model where you know, you have one guy in a huge machine farming hundreds of hectares with lots of chemicals mm. um, to a system that you know, maybe has more people back on the land. You know, I mean, we're constantly being told that a lot of conventional jobs are gonna disappear in the near future because we'll be replaced by artificial intelligence, basically. Mm. So what are people gonna do in the future? Well, maybe we could get more people back onto you know, growing food. Not everyone wants to do it, I'm sure, but um, there there's 90,000 people on waiting lists for allotments at the moment in the really? UK, Gosh. which are people who want to grow their own, you know, zero food miles, zero packaging food, but they can't because they can't get the land. Yeah, um, And given that allotments are quite productive and support nature and also actually isn't it, a really interesting study from the Netherlands published a couple of years ago which showed that people who have allotments are healthier than oh. non-allotment holders. They actually compared a guy with, or a girl with an allotment with their immediate neighbour yeah. who didn't have an allotment yeah. and, and measured all sorts of aspects of their health And particularly when they were older, the ones with allotments were healthier, which I thought was really cool, you know. I mean, whether it's, it's, it wasn't clear why, you know, was it the healthy food, was it the exercise, was it some social aspect of having an allotment? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But anyway, one way or another, allotments seem to be... Good for people.
0: They feed you in all sorts of ways.
1: Yeah, and good for nature. So, <laughs> exactly, you know, and uh,
0: the community actually isn't yeah, it too? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Kind of brings people bring, together it, exactly. to share and talk and so on. So yeah, and
1: people, swap vegetables and
0: vegetable stories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, so yeah, yeah. I, you know there are ways forward, but yes. uh, it just t- needs a bit of imagination. To... Yeah,
0: yeah. So in your book, uh, the garden jungle, I have to ask you this: Are you a keen cook? The reason I'm asking you this is because at the beginning of each of the, I think there are 12 chapters in the book, aren't there? But at the beginning of each of them, you start with a recipe.
2: Yeah. No, <laughs> so I, I
0: was curious. I thought, hmm, is it, does he, has he cooked them all? Um,
2: yeah, yeah. It's a
0: fork gardener. And it looks like some of them look as if they're fairly easy. You can get the ingredients, no problem. But I was very amused by the first recipe, which is for mulberry muffins. And how did you suggest that people should get hold of mulberries? Well,
1: okay, so mulberries are challenging. Um, so I do say, you know, the first step of the recipe is plant a mulberry tree and then wait 10 years. Yes. Uh, which isn't perhaps, you know, you need patience. So I was, when, was the, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, we lived in a, a house in, uh, this is in Shropshire with my parents. Okay. And there was a beautiful mulberry tree in the garden, and we used to use them for baking and you know making muffins and mm. yeah, wine and all sorts of things. Um, it was fantastic. Mm. Sadly, the, the the problem is that mulberries don't keep, so they're never in the shops because you can't pick them and transport them to the supermarket. So so that's why, although they grow perfectly well in Britain, but you never see them on sale commercially because no. they just they just disintegrate basically if you try to you know pack them in a punnet or whatever right um so you need to grow it yourself and unfortunately <laughs> they're slow growing trees so either you 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 find a house with an established mulberry tree which yeah, just is pretty house. pretty difficult that's one, that's and, one possibility fairly extreme or you're very patient and you grow your own yeah um but one day you know i've got I, i've i've got three mulberry trees in the garden here not yet producing because i haven't been here long enough but uh, I live in hope that I will be able to start making those those mulberry muffins
0: again. Right. Um, sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, but it's very good to kind of uh, you know get, get the interest going by a recipe at the very beginning. Um, and it's sort of the way the book is written. It, it comes across that each chapter you're writing, you, you've got a particular message you want to give or you're concentrating on a particular area. Um, so like the first one is plants... In profusion, and you talk yeah. about the importance of growing lots of different plants, yeah. a wide variety, and all that sort of thing. Um, and to help just the message, really, I suppose, at the outset that gardens reconnect us with nature and so on. And then from there, you go on to a me- the meadow, the next one you're looking mm. at, how people, even in a small garden, can go about creating something of a wildflower
1: yeah well it it brings us back to what we were just talking about and that we lost all these beautiful flower meadows but um you know why there's no reason at all why you can't have a miniature one in your garden it might not be quite the same as a you know as a beautiful meadow that's been there for 500 years but actually you can get you know you, you you can do pretty well quite quickly and there are different ways you can go about it depending on exactly what you want to achieve um, but even, you know, a couple of square metres sown with wildflowers will make a lovely splash of colour, and it will attract... You'll see hoverflies, bumblebees, butterflies being attracted to it. So you'll see, you know, it is contributing something. Yeah. Um, so if, if if we could, you know, try and... So generally, I mean, actually, really simple things, like just mowing less often. Oh, um, do less. You know, it's the simplest. <laughs> I mean, you know, actually, literally do less. Save money, <laughs> save time, save petrol. Yeah.
2: Um
1: and, you know, as I often say to people, you know, next time, because we are a sort of obsessive mowers in Britain, you know. I yes. think a lot of people do, they're trying to kind of emulate a kind of Wimbledon tennis court in their back garden with, you know, stripes up and down. And, and I don't really know why. I mean, I guess it's just a kind of inbuilt tidiness thing mm. that, that a lot of people have. Um, but if you could fight that, and, you know, the next time you get the urge to mow, just try and kind of restrain yourself and just, you know, get the deck chair out and with a coffee or a gin and tonic <laughs> or whatever. And, awful. Why would you do that? And, <laughs> sit and look at the flowers. Because most lawns are full of flowers. You know, this, yeah. this lawn just outside the window here, yes. it looks terrible because it's, you know, it's the 3rd of March. Um, uh, turkeys and so ducks. So turkey and,
0: flying across the uh, yes, front uh, of the house now, followed by ducks. Oh. Um,
1: but, and it looks like it's just grass from yes. here. But it's not. Um, in 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 a couple of months' time, it'll be full of dandelions and daisies, and then a bit later in the year, buttercups and self-heal and uh, speedwell, and so on and so on. There's and there's loads of clovers in there as well. Mm. And obviously, if you mow all the time, you, they never get to flower because they can't. You know, you're just constantly mowing off the buds. Mm. Um, but if you just stop for a week or two, it'll bursts into flower
3: mm. um
1: i i guess it depends a little bit if you if you if your lawn is newly laid and was laid with you know commercial turf then there perhaps won't be many or any flowers in it mm. but most lawns that have been there for a few years they've you know there are weeds as it were that mm. have that have arrived um but so this is one of my sort of um uh arguments is that a weed is I mean a weed is just a figment of our imagination you know we've invented the term weeds for plants that we decided are in the wrong place or the wrong but at the end of the day they're all just flowers and if we could if if, you know the the best the the easiest way to get rid of the weeds in your garden is to just call them all wildflowers and be done right um and so you know why do people spend so much time kind of trying to persecute broad-leaved plants growing in lawns you know dandelions or Whatever else it might be, why do we think a lawn has to be a hundred percent grass? It doesn't. You know, there's nothing wrong with all those other green things that right. are there. Yeah, and I've, it's really sad that you know some people have these lawn care companies that come around, you know, half a dozen times a year, and they'll spray selective herbicides and fertilizers and all sorts of stuff over the lawn, and they'll spike it and they'll rake it for moss. And it's like. What on earth are you doing? It's a lawn. It's green. Go and just sit on it and enjoy it, you know. Stop. <laughs> and
0: don't spend the money. <laughs> don't spend the money. Stop
1: using all these darn chemicals. Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: It's I mean it's, 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 sadly my dad does. He has one of these. I mean he's 87, so obviously it's a limit to what he can do himself. Mm. But he has one of these lawn care companies that come round and, and it, I despair. I've tried to persuade him not to.
0: but uh, <laughs> He won't listen to his son. <laughs>
1: no, sadly not. He's a bit old to change. I well, think.
0: it's funny because I can remember I lived in a house and uh, we did have weeds and uh, da- daisies and quite a lot of dandelions. And somebody from down the road, maybe they just had a lawn laid themselves. but They came round to tell me kindly that if I picked the dandelions, it wouldn't turn into a, you know, the dandelion
1: patch or whatever the little
0: flower you know oh, the, yeah, the, the, the seed head sorry yeah, the, yeah, like the, cl- yeah. the
1: dandelion
2: clock
0: yes It said if you pick it it won't do that and then the seeds won't spread like, oh right I did actually know that but obviously yeah. very keen that my dandelion shouldn't go down the road
1: <laughs> yeah people I don't know what it is about dandelions and I know they, they you know they, they obviously do seed pretty enthusiastically given the chance and, yeah um but on the other hand they're great for, for pollinators, oh, um, they, yeah, because yeah. they because they flower quite early in the year when there isn't too much else around. Yeah, you see lots of um, bumblebees on them, and, and hoverflies, and all sorts of other insects too. So but uh, so you know, them. yeah, we should wherever you can, you know. Um, it, uh, along with you know, things uh, ragwort is another another kind of interesting weed that people persecute. Um, uh, people hate ragwort. You it's know. Diff-
0: it's on- um, isn't it one that's difficult for horses?
1: It's 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 poisonous, it, but it, so um, uh, and some pretty wild claims have been made about you know thousands of horses get poisoned every year, which aren't true. It's not true at all. I don't know why people make this stuff up. Um, basically, it's 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 a it's a fantastic wildflower, mm. quite pretty. I've got a load of it grows grows in my flower beds actually. Um, really attractive to lots and lots of different insects Mm. Um, and also you get cinnabar caterpillars on it the lovely yellow and black caterpillars which turn to these beautiful black and red moths Um, uh, but it's poisonous to livestock however livestock don't eat it so if it's growing in a pasture horses just graze around it you'll see the ragwort untouched it's no danger at all when it's growing the only time it is a danger is it is it, 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 it when it's if it's harvested in hay mm. and dried mm. then the animals eating the hay oh. can if there's a lot of ragwort in there that can poison them It's very oh. occasion if if someone is stupid enough to try and make hay from a field full of ragwort then they can okay. do, but that hardly anyone is is that inept to be honest okay so anyway, this is a bit of a side issue, but it, but again, it's just an example of a plant that's a sort of native flower, yeah. really valuable to insects, but for some reason has been kind of demonised, right. and and you know, you're, yeah, I don't really understand why. Right. I, yeah. I've got loads of it in the garden, okay. and I think it's great. Yeah, okay, um, <laughs> each to their own.
0: Exactly, but then you do cut a wildflower meadow at some point. You
1: have to, yeah, because I mean, essentially, if you if you just left it. Eventually, it would, it would become a, a forest. Mm. Um, it would take a long time. Mm. But brambles would appear, probably, with the first thing you'd, you'd see. And then you'd have a bramble thicket, and then saplings would come through. Right. And 100 years from now, or perhaps a lot less, actually, if you go to NEP, the rewilding project, it's quite, you'll see what happens if you stop doing anything. Right. Um, but... Uh, uh, yeah, so traditional hay meadow management is, is to cut, usually once a year in the summer, um, and then sometimes they have a bit of grazing in the autumn, um, but if you don't do anything you you 'll lose the flowers eventually and'll okay. you'll end up with woodland so you, and it seems slightly sacrilegious to to cut it in the summer when it's full of flowers and insects, and yes. uh, you know it's painful to do. What I try to do because i i've got lots of lo- lots of sort of meadow in my garden mm. and I, I just cut it in bits. So don't, I don't cut it all at once. It's mm-hmm. not so practical for a farmer to do that. But in a garden, if you've got a, a meadow area, if you mow, you know, a third of it and then wait a week or so so that the, the insect life can move, you know. Um, and then so you stagger it, basically. And then by the time you cut the final bit, the first bit is kind of already back in flower. Oh, okay. And um, it kind of reduces the... The, the, the trauma for the, for the wildlife. Yeah. Um, but you know, that, the, 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 without that cutting, you'd lose, you'd lose everything eventually. Yeah. So it, it kind of has to be done.
0: And do you plant, uh, do you put seeds in, in your own wildflower areas or do you plant plugs or? Yeah. I,
1: I mess around. I mean, in the garden, I, uh, I, um, I, I, grow up wildflowers and plant them out um, uh-huh. usually the rabbits eat them which is frustrating but you know <laughs> um, and I sprinkle wildflower seeds um, in, and uh, just generally try and encourage you know as much botanical diversity as I, as I can in, on a bigger scale in a, you know if you're trying like in my meadow down in France growing plugs is you know with 33 acres would be pretty few, unless you had an awful lot of time on your hands which yes. is not really going to be an effective way But actually the interesting thing is that you don't really need to sow anything, Um, if you manage it in the right way, plants just appear, you know, they come in the seeds blowing on the wind or brought in in, in, you know, bird poo or whatever it might be, mm. um, and, you know, as a sort of, it's a, you know, a natural process is what seeds do, they, they you know, most of them are designed like the seeds of a dandelion to blow mm. on the wind or whatever, they all have their own mechanism of dispersal, so they'll arrive slowly, and it's been really interesting down in, in, in the meadow in France to watch it, you know, because it had almost zero botanical diversity to start with, mm. Um, but over the last 18 years just every year a few extra species of plant just pop up you know yeah. whether they were in the seeds were in the soil all along and just you know binding their time or whether they've blown on the wind or, or who knows but they they appear yeah
2: um
1: so yeah, yeah it's just a case of kind of providing the right um management and and the nature does the rest really yeah.
0: and lay off the pesticides and lay off just yeah. do nothing really I mean
1: well no it's well, no, not, not, not something nothing yeah. but you don't need pest I mean honestly I completely passionately uh, would argue that you don't need any pesticides in a garden yeah um I mean th- there are a few instances where it, it's certainly easier to use a herbicide than to to you know manually control weeds but it's always there's always a way of doing it manually and given the recent evidence that's um, come to light connecting things like glyphosate with cancer, mm-hmm. um, it's still, there's some debate about it, but the evidence is strong enough that I think you'd be mad to be using glyphosate in your garden personally. Right. Um, and we keep finding out that these chemicals are, you know, we're told initially that they're fine. And then it eventually, you know, someone investigates in a little more detail and you find out 20 years later that actually they're not fine. Yes. And that just has happened over and over again. So I don't really trust any of these chemicals to be completely safe. No. Um, and, and you just don't need them in a the garden. You know, it's, it's, you, you can argue that to feed the world, maybe we need some pesticides in farming, but in your garden, you don't need them. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you've got some aphids on your, or, or whatever it might be, some pests... Mm. If you just leave them, and if you've got a healthy pesticide free garden, then you can be almost certain that a ladybird or a lacewing or an earwig or a hoverfly larvae will come along and eat them. And even if it doesn't, if worst case scenario, you've still got some aphids on your roses or whatever it might be on your runner beans, mm. big deal, you know. You got a few it might you might produce a few f- fewer flowers as a result or a few fewer beans as a result well mm. you know mm. suck it up it's not really not such <laughs> so, I and mean, what the choice is that or you you basically get a can of poison and start chucking it around your garden where your pets and your children play mm. seems like a pretty stupid idea to me yeah. um, so I you know I, I mean and the, you know I garden organically I mean I admittedly my garden isn't tidy as you can see but um uh, but plenty of people, you know, have been gardening organically for years. And there are beautiful gardens maintained yes. entirely organically. There's just no need. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, France recently banned all pesticides except for use by licensed farmers, basically. So unless you're, you're actually a, a farmer, you just can't buy them. Gosh. Um, so there'll be, n- you know, every garden and every city in the entirety of France is now pesticide free.
0: Goodness. Isn't that fantastic? What do they have on their shelves in garden centres? Well, I, I, I mean, I guess
1: I guess they took a bit of a hit when it came to sales. Yeah. Um, but I think that's really inspiring. It if is. the whole of France can do that, you yes. know, Paris, the whole, you know, it yeah. still has its beautiful parks, so they're yes. not all suddenly overrun with pests and weeds. Yeah. Um, then why can't we? Yeah. You know, why can't everywhere? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that would be great. Yeah,
0: it certainly would. Um, and then in the other chapters of the book there's all sorts of things you talk about uh, one is your uh, hatred of pesticides um you you also do a lot on bees as well and um so on but i, I was very taken with the chapter on moths
1: oh yeah yeah
0: because yeah. again they're kind of quite we we love butterflies but i guess moths are a little bit of a different
1: yeah, altogether. people, people, moths don't have a great kind of reputation, do they? I mean, I, I, I guess people think of them as slightly, almost sinister, really, uh, you yes. know, and probably the silence of the lambs didn't help. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're kind of something associated with the night and, and you know, and they, these sort of drab brown things that fly in and bash themselves to death on light fittings yeah. and so on. I did, but actually, if, if you take the time to look at them, most moths are beautiful. Obviously, some of them are actually very brightly coloured and just as brightly coloured as, as butterflies. Mm. Just as beautiful. Mm. Um, is it that they've
0: got bigger bodies, do
1: you think, some of them? I mean, they're quite. Maybe. I, I mean, I, I, the thing is, I really love them, so I, oh. I, I, I struggle to understand what, what the problem is that people have with moths. Right. I, I get clothes moths, they are quite annoying, you yeah. know, you, my wife's always, because we've got one or two in this house, and, you know, occasionally a, a lovely woolen, you know, jumper ends up with a hole in it, and that's frustrating, but, you know, that's just one rather slightly annoying, pesky moth. But actually, the the really cool thing is just how many there are, and how beautiful they are, if, you, if you're lucky enough to get a chance to see them. Um, so I had these, um, this, this eccentric Belgian guy contacted me out of the blue. I, I should say I used to moth trap a bit um, when I was a kid. W- I, I bought a, a, a kind of bright ultraviolet light trap to, to attract moths, but I hadn't done it since I was a teenager, and I'd never done, it, done any moth trapping here. And this guy just got, got in touch with me and said, could he come and camp in my garden and run a moth trap, see what he could catch them all? Yeah, well, you know why? It's not the usual
0: sort of communication No, no, you it's a
1: bit, a bit eccentric, <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, why not, absolutely. I thought, well, it'd be interesting to see what he, yes. what he finds. And he, but it's kind of his hobby is to travel around, going to people's gardens, anyone he can find who's kind of interested or, you know, minor personalities. He's, he's in, in Belgium, he's managed to, to do this in the gardens of a few uh, politicians and so on. Oh, and it's his kind of way of just engaging people with with how cool moths are. Yeah. Anyway, I was he he was he, he had three big traps that he put up in, in the garden, dotted around. And then we all got up early in the morning at first light to see what had come into these traps. And I mean it's astonishing, you know, hundreds of species of, of moth just in really? just in my garden here, oh. just in one night. Oh. Um, and some of them, you know, these beautiful great big hawk moths. Um which, you know, presumably they're here all the time, but you well not all the time, but in the summer. Yes. But you just never see them because most of them are strictly nocturnal and you know, they're flying around in the dark and how would you see them? Yes. But stick a stick in, something that attracts them out
3: uh-huh.
1: um, and suddenly you see, you know, so these things called privet hawk moths, which are great big, heavy, fat bodied, furry moths with pink and black and white stripes on them. I mean, stunning creatures, absolutely. And and elephant hawk moths, which are kind of bright green and crimson in kind of lovely sort of swirly patterns. I mean, extraordinary creatures. They look like something from a rainforest or somewhere exotic, you know. And they're just living all around us. But but they, they spend their days, you know, hidden in the long grass or in the trees or somewhere often we just don't know yeah. and see so you, you could literally live your whole life and never see one of these things but
3: Amazing.
1: they they're here um and uh, yeah you know of course they're also their food for bats and and birds and uh, they pollinate um lots of different flowers and so on so they're you know um important as well as kind of Fascinating.
0: Yeah, and we can grow things that will attract them, presumably.
1: Yeah. Probably. So the key with there the, are the, the some flowers. I mentioned honeysuckle earlier, and things like nicotiana is a good one for oh. um, evening primrose. Another good one. Any basically scented flowers tend to be moth pollinated. Right. Um. Uh. And and the food plants, you know, and basically, the, the, so their caterpillars need something to eat. Yeah. And the more diversity of um, native plants you can grow wildflowers shrubs trees the more food you're providing for more different species of moth which yeah. uh, uh, can only be a good thing as far yeah. as i'm concerned
0: yeah and you had a lovely story in the in that chapter i think it was about the lady who came across the elephant oh moths yeah well i don't know if lovely somewhere. story is
1: the right word but
0: no, well, it was uh, very fun, but it was funny actually no
1: this was a long time ago it was in the local newspaper um uh, but yeah, this, this, this woman found... Um, so the caterpillars of an elephant hawk moth have got big fake eyes on the sides of the forward half of the body, um, mm-hmm. which, which are, I presume meant to frighten predators into thinking it's a snake or a, something more intimidating. I mean, actually, obviously it's a completely harmless, very edible caterpillar. Mm. Um, and they, they, they mainly feed on willow herbs in the wild, but they will feed on fuchsias as well in gardens. Um, anyway this this foolish woman found um, some of these big brown caterpillars with eyes on on her fuchsias, and I, I panicked, thought they were snakes or something. <laughs>
0: And snakes on fuchsias, I mean.
1: obviously, yeah, it happens all the time. <laughs> well
0: I'd be panicking. And, I'm sure. and, and,
1: and poured petrol on the on on the bushes. I mean, honestly. And set light to them. Um, and managed to burn down her garage in the <laughs> process, which you know was the least she deserved as far as I'm oh. concerned. <laughs> <laughs> Poor caterpillars. Got
0: rid of the snakes though. Well yes,
1: yeah, so <laughs> half her garden by the oh, sound of it. Dear, dear.
0: But, honestly.
1: Desperate. But it just shows that the sort of sadly, kind of ignorance and, yes. <laughs> and this sort of fear people have of nature, you know. I mean these things at the end of the day, even when they're they're quite big caterpillars. Yes. But they're still only about three inches long, you know. I mean, really, I mean how could you be that frightened by some poor little caterpillar munching leaves, you know, yeah. but Anyway, yeah,
0: there um, you go and the other thing is that don't they have lovely names i know plants have lovely names and flowers and it's always interesting to to learn about those but
1: yes the moths
0: have beautiful I, names I,
1: I don't know who who um name you know i mean uh, most of the names we don't know who fought them up but whoever it was for moths you know they had great imagination because they, there's all sorts of um, very elaborate names, and some of them don't seem to make any sense, you know, there's the, well, one of the moths we had here, the, the scarce merveille de jour.
2: Mm, you know, we're,
1: we're, I, I, I mean, I guess it's French, but I don't know. But anyway, yeah, you know, the the, the, the scalloped thorn and the, the crimson wave and all that. Oh, some okay. of them are quite descriptive of the patterns, and sometimes right. they just seem to be kind of flights of fancy, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> um,
0: uh, literally com- yeah uh, <laughs>
1: it, yes yeah it's
0: uh this, I, I came across one called rosy footman
1: the rosy footman yeah lovely little moths um tiny oh. we had dozens of those in the in the trap here oh. but oh. yeah why that seemed like a good name to somebody i've yeah. absolutely what no water idea water
0: veneer a water veneer moth is that yeah does that go to water
1: it's it's an aquatic moth which oh. is totally weird um yeah. i didn't again didn't know i had them oh. um until we put the trap out, but they must be living in the pond here. Yeah, and in fact, they they eat. Um, there's a there's an invasive uh, weed which I've got in the pond, which I've been trying to get rid of. Um, but they eat that, so they're doing doing a useful job. Um, yeah. But yeah, so the the females, and this is really peculiar. The the females don't have wings, um, and they live underwater. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, the, and come to the surface to mate, and the, 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 the males do fly around, it was the males we had in the, in the trap. Okay. Um, but uh, kind of small, pale, translucent looking, not very spectacular moths, Yes. but just kind of this bizarre life cycle that, you know, completely unlike um, any other um, moth that I've ever, ever come across. And, so uh, do
0: they lay their eggs under the water?
1: yeah they lay they lay their eggs on the plant, on the pond weed this oh, okay. this invasive weed really, yeah. that's what the caterpillars eat oh. um but the the females never leave the pond oh, you know they 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 just they don't they can't fly they just they just sit there just on the on the weeds just by the surface, and oh. the male has to somehow. Managed to mate with the female without drowning. Which I quite how he does that. I'm not really sure. I've I've never seen them doing that. I've only ever seen the, the males in the in the trap. And um, the they rest have of the a time, a
0: hard time of it. Really, these males.
1: Well, it's don't like,
0: well
1: yeah, I, a certain <laughs> sympathy. It was quite tricky trying to sort of mate while, without drowning. But... <laughs>
2: I mean, well, it's not
0: only that that has a problem because I, I remember somewhere else, it may have been on your YouTube that You were talking, you, sorry, YouTube channel. You were talking about, I think it was the praying mantis.
1: Oh yeah, and what yeah. happens to the
0: poor blighter there, who's uh,
1: Yeah, well, that's trying a, to a, be yeah, social. Yeah, sex in in uh, mantises is a uh, is, is a very dangerous business <laughs> because the the female. The, I mean, they're, obviously they're predatory. They like to eat insects, and the, a female mantis is much bigger and stronger than a male right. mantis. So. Approaching a female um, is is highly dangerous because you know if depending on what mood she's in she might decide she's. More interested in eating than sex, and if she is, then there's a pretty good chance that he's going to be lunch, you know. Um, and even when they manage to mate, they often end up then being eaten before they can get away. Oh, it's a tough life, it's well, it's certainly an exciting one. If you're, if you're, <laughs> a quick
0: getaway, no wonder they can fly, perhaps they fly more quickly. They don't than fly do
1: they? very well, actually. Oh, well, but the male, yeah. the males are better at flying than females, yes, but well, there's they, a good reason for it. They do, yeah. Different species of <laughs> mantis have different tactics to try and avoid being eaten oh, but they dear. often don't work
0: <laughs> and then you go on in other chapters to talk about ants which is fascinating and worms you're very keen on worms aren't yeah you?
1: well I mean worms are a classic kind of underappreciated creature aren't they I mean anyone who knows a little bit about gardening knows that worms are really important to soil health you know they help to aerate the soil by creating these vertical tunnels that take oxygen down and they drag organic material from the surface, leaves and so on, and into the soil to increasing the organic matter content of the soil. So they do fantastic. Uh, they bring up worm casts, which is basically the so they eat organic matter and then they poo it out on the surface, which and that greatly increases soil fertility. So mm. basically, worms are brilliant creatures, yes. and there are millions of them in a healthy garden. Right. Um, it's extraordinary numbers of them. I mean, there's there's it's in a healthy ecosystem there's often more weight of worms than all the above ground animals put together really um, but you just wouldn't know it because they're just you know can't
3: see them Quite
1: exactly <laughs> um gosh uh, and 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 of uh, course they're also they're food for quite a lot of creatures i mean everything from badgers to blackbirds likes to eat yeah. it, a worm hedgehogs and so on yeah um but they also are are well we think they seem to be, have become much less common, particularly in farmland, particularly arable farmland.
3: Oh. Um,
1: now, whether that's the ploughing, which obviously doesn't do them much good, no. um, or pesticides, or just the lack—probably big—the biggest factor is that is that um, a lot of arable land is now lost, a lot of its organic matter content. There isn't, which is what the worms are actually eating. Oh. Um, uh, the, a lot of arable fields rely very heavily on artificial fertilisers, you know, chemical fertilisers, which are obviously not something worms can eat. No. And they don't have much in the way of organic matter anymore. Right. Um, and so there's just no food for worms.
3: Right.
1: Whatever the cause, it basically, you know, it's something that farmers should be concerned about because yeah. worms really help keep the soil healthy, maintain the structure and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I've have done. You can do a worm survey in your garden. There's a, there's a fantastic, fairly new society called the I for the British Earthworm Society. Um, only has a few hundred members as yet. Um, but they 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 they, they um, have a kind of protocol for doing your own worm count in your garden, which basically involves digging a. A set-sized little kind of pit and sorting, searching through to see how many worms you can find. And there's also an ID guide oh. to the you can you can learn which species of worm you have because there's a whole load of different earthworms in in most gardens. Right. Um, I, I forget how many species I managed to identify here. Um, it, was a, it was best part of a dozen, I think. Wow. Um, and. Uh, and, but I did. I did the same thing. I walked. There's a there's a footpath along the edge of a, an arable field, only I don't know 400 metres from where we're sitting, um, and I snuck up there when there was no one around and, and did a did, did, dug one of these pits and searched for, and virtually nothing. Really, and there were a couple of worms, but it, you know, yeah. compared to, to the hundreds I found in the same size pit in in my garden. Yeah. Um, and you know Darwin did worm surveys in his garden in Down House, and you know he, he had many more than I have here, actually, even though my garden's organic and yeah. everything. So um, there's certainly cause to be concerned that there don't seem to be as many as they used to be, and right. there's something that it's so easy to overlook, you know, because yes. people just. Don't pay any attention to no. to the so lowly worm. What
0: should we do then to encourage more worms in our gardens?
1: Well, so that's a good question. I mean, basically organic matter. So, compost, if you have a compost heap and then mulch the mulch your flower beds right. or vegetable patches or, or whatever with compost, that's the best thing you can do for worms because so they compost
0: heap is essential. Yeah, 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 in absolutely. Style.
1: Well, I mean, not just for the worms, of course. You know, everyone should be recycling their green waste into compost. I mean, it's so much more sustainable than. Than anything else you might do, and the compost itself. E- even if you don't do a, you know, a really thorough job of making perfect compost, it's fantastic to just spread on the, on the vegetable beds or flower borders or whatever. And it. But if you if you take a bit of care and get it up to a good temperature so that it composts quickly, it's actually you can use it for, you know, as a, in place of the stuff you might buy in a sack from the garden centre. You can actually grow seeds and and use it for potting up and so on as well. Yeah. Um, mix it with a little bit of sand usually to to make your own compost uh-huh. um, and you know it's really sad that this is a bit bit of a pet kind of hobby horse of mine but um, here we go here we go we're off um pete the whole oh, pete I, issue i thought
0: we might get to pete we have to end. get to pete at some point um
1: you know the, 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 this crazy i mean every garden center i've been i've been i've been actually making a short youtube video about this at the moment just opportunistically every time i go near a diy store or a supermarket or a garden center i i get my phone out and i, I basically film what the compost they're selling, whether it's got peat in it or not. And of course nearly all of them do still. Um uh, most of the places the, the like the local Tesco's here in Utfield, they only sell compost made from peat. Mm. Um there's no non the bigger garden centres usually somewhere in a corner you'll find a peat free compost, but you know, most people are completely unaware of this issue and they won't buy it. They'll be buying them the other stuff,
2: yeah.
1: and it, you know, it should be banned, it should, I mean it's madness that we allow people to use peat, and it still astonishes me that there are lots of people out there who aren't, don't know why it's bad to use peat, so, so let me explain, us. so
0: tell us, well,
1: so, <laughs> peat is, is a naturally occurring, it's organic matter laid down in a peat bog, which is anaerobic, there's no oxygen, it's waterlogged. And, it, and so it's basically dead leaves from plant material that accumulate in this ever-thickening layer of peat, mm. uh, which locks up thousands of tons of carbon, carbon which w- could otherwise be in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. Okay. So um, the, the peat stores are some of the biggest stores of carbon on the planet. It's, a be- it's essentially a fossil fuel. It hasn't been compacted enough to turn into coal yet or oil. Right. But it's, it's a surface... Fossil fuel, essentially, that people do, you did, used to dig up and burn, and still do a little tiny bit. Yeah, in
0: Ireland, certainly. Yeah. I mean, my parents are um, from Ireland, and I know that you know they used to tell stories of
1: people. Yeah, using they, they, you still can buy it for burning at home oh. occasionally in Ireland, okay. but most of it is dug up to to, to make garden compost. Um, most plants you would buy from garden centres have been reared in a peat-based compost. Okay, um, but. Basically, as soon as you dig it out of the ground, you take it's, it's oxygen gets to it, mm-hmm. it'll start to oxidize. All of that peat that you buy in a sack, 10 or 20 years from now, will have oxidized into carbon dioxide. So it's contributing to climate change. Yes. And also, peat, peat bogs do two other things. One is that they're a rare, it's a rare habitat that supports all sorts of interesting plant and insect life and bird life. Mm. Things like sundews grow on peat bogs. Um, Sorry, things. The are... sun, sundew, this carnivorous plant that, oh. uh, if you can, you get them in places like the New Forest on the on oh. the peatlands there, There's really fascinating, low-growing um, plants with uh, red um, sticky leaves that mm. eat ants and other insects. Anyway, that's just one example of a plant that lives in a in a in, on peat, naturally, mm-hmm. obviously, when you dig it up to put it in sacks, you destroy all of that. Um, it's it's essentially a non it take it, it it it's essentially a non renewable resource that we're using up. We're destroying the the habitat, yes. adding to climate change, and and the third thing very relevant at the moment. You know, recent floods all over Britain. Yes. Um, peat is a fantastic sponge. It oh. sucks up water when it rains, oh. and a, a, a peat bog can hold ten times its own weight in water. Right. Um, when and, and then slowly the water dribbles out over weeks and months afterwards. So it basically, the, look a well maintained peat bog,
2: yeah.
1: is a great way of reducing flooding. So it's just madness to dig them up, complete madness, all so that we can grow some pretty flowers. You know, I mean, mm. it's so trivial, the purposes being used for. Mm. And government, you know, people have been campaigning on this for decades. Yes. Government said about 15 years ago, that they were going to completely phase out peat-based composts for domestic use by 2020. Well, it is 2020. They haven't been phased out. Nothing has actually happened. They were hoping this would sort of magically happen voluntarily. But it's about time they actually just passed a law and said... Right, you cannot dig this stuff out of the ground anymore. Yeah. We've dug most of the most of the lowland peat of of the UK up already. So now we import most of our peat from Ireland, or a lot of it's coming from Estonia now, which is a beautiful oh, country with lots of peat bogs, which we're rapidly destroying. Oh, um, so you know, yeah. um, it just just I, I, it breaks my heart to see there's still you know the lack of awareness of this. And I go to I've been to my local garden centre, and I've tried saying to the staff, you know. Why are you selling this stuff? And they look at me blankly as if this is complete news to them. And it's yes. like, oh, how can people not know this?
0: Yes. <sighs> So very We need to clear those shelves in the garden centres. Essentially, I mean, get all the pesticides. Exactly. Pesticides, I'm not sure
1: what the garden centres would sell. Get rid of um, all the peat.
0: Well, they just go back to gifts. Well, and coffee.
1: Yes, and, and plants <laughs> grown in without pesticides in yeah. peat-free compost. So,
0: uh, you 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 grow uh, obviously. I guess you've got your own compost heaps.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Lots of them dotted oh, around. They're right, all very. Okay. Um, well, I've got some of the. Plastic barrel kind of types that the you know the council give out, which I've inherited over the years. But the main ones are, are big square ones made from old pallets. Yeah. Um, which you know I don't do anything fancy. I mean I know some people are very um, they they take their composting extremely seriously and they turn the heap and it has to be just the right mixture of carbon rich and nitrogen rich materials and so on, I tend to just mix it all up and chuck it in and not worry too much about it. Because I, I mean, I'm lucky in that I've got lots of room and so if it takes a year or two to make decent compost, I don't really care. No. Cause, um, and if, if I run out of room in the existing compost heaps, I just build another one. <laughs> Excellent. Um, <laughs> uh, but if you want to do it quickly, you can pay a little more attention yeah. to, to yeah, getting yeah, the yeah. mix right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, every garden should have its compost heap. Yeah,
0: no peat. Right, we've got that as well. We're, we're yeah. ditching a lot of stuff now, aren't we? Yeah, really?
1: well, I mean, the thing is that you can, if, if you haven't got the time, energy or space to... to to make your own compost you there are really good peat-free composts that oh, you can yeah. buy I, I yeah guess that
0: people perhaps don't think that we've used peat for such a long time we sort of think well that is the only way to go yeah there. but, but
1: it, it really isn't I no. mean there's 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 um there's stuff called silver grow you know I have no shares in the company or anything but it's <laughs> that that's got an RHS kind of award of merit or whatever okay. you know rep, uh, people who use it and there there are some if, you know, forward-thinking gardens and, cent- uh, you know, nursery nurseries that don't use peat and that say it's absolutely perfect, um, you know, yes. you can grow stuff just as well with active. coir,
0: there's a coir?
1: Well, there's a coir-based uh, ones, although I have heard it argued that that, that has its own environmental oh. cost. So it's the, the endless minefield of yes, trying to be ethical yeah, these yeah. days. Because <laughs> that's imported from, the, you know, places where palm trees grow for a oh. start. Um and some people argue that, that palms, you know, are, can be grown in you know in, in ways that aren't particularly sustainable or okay. good for the environment. So, I, I, I we it's need to do a research tricky. a little bit,
0: but uh, yes. Yeah, just but st- anyway,
1: Silver Grow is the is the one that I know is supposed to be um, good. Okay. I'm sure there are others too. Others are available. Uh, exactly. <laughs> um, and
0: and our own compost. I mean, essentially, if we're making our own compost, we can yeah, use that yeah, uh, lots of absolutely. organic matter. You know, you, at the end of the book, you're kind of just making a plea for people to garden to save the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any sort of people or uh, gardeners or uh, writers who've particularly influenced you in your journey through all of this that you have found inspirational? There, uh, there are
1: lots of people that I've kind of learnt bits and pieces from. Um, Charles Dowding and his... No dig gardening, um, mm. which I, I, his website's really useful, um, and that that's something I discovered relatively recently. The idea that you know, basically, you don't need to dig. Um, why would you dig if you don't need to dig? It's darned hard work, and and actually, that's again really good for the worms to not dig and just mulch on the surface.
3: Oh, yeah.
1: um, but even I mean, actually, Monty Don, I think, is really cool. I like him. Yes. You know, he's he's been campaigning on Pete. Even he doesn't seem to have the. The, the reach to to have had much effect yeah but you know he's he's organic and peat free and mm. it's nice to see you know people on mainstream kind of media that are actually uh, on message with these issues
0: absolutely and um, again, very accessible for people isn't he you know his, yeah his, where he talks about plants and gardening and growing and his enthusiasm for it
1: yeah absolutely i I, I think he, he comes across really well and mm. uh, um but yeah, and there's, I mean, and also there's some some farmers I've met over the years that, uh, um, you know, that are thinking a bit differently, that aren't, kind of, you know, that realize we need to question the way we've been growing food and this kind of avenue of industrialization we've gone down, and they're trying, in different ways, to, to change, you know, all sort. I mean, there's so many, interesting kind of innovative, new approaches to. To food production, that, that some farmers, not many as yet, are playing around with. And I mentioned the biodynamic, which is a kind of fairly extreme, kind of hippie version of farming, but very effective. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong when I say hippie. Yeah. But also, the things like agroforestry, there are farmers ex- experimenting with um, putting lots more trees onto their land, be it, be it pasture or arable. Um, you know put it, lines of apple trees across cereal fields for example which suddenly oh, is right. you know it supports much more biodiversity it helps to protect the soil increases the the soil carbon gives you two different crops from the same yes. piece of land um, and there are there are people looking at um, what they call sil- silver pasture now as well as people, discovered i'm not sure whether this was actually the NEP project that that brought this to light but basically cows really like to eat shrubs foliage from trees yeah. rather than grass if you give them the choice they love it um and uh, so people actually now grazing cows in in sort of scrubland and woodland and planting trees on pasture rather than just acres and acres of bright green ryegrass which is kind of what we've come to think is where that's how you keep cows if you've got dairy cows or beef cows you need a fields of ryegrass which you put lots of fertilizer on and you know but actually from a wildlife perspective it's hopeless yes but actually now we've got got farmers trialing grazing their cows in woodland and that seems really odd you know because you just never see it but actually the cows seem to do pretty well and uh um, uh, and be healthier in lots of ways than, yeah. than if they're just eating a really boring diet of grass. So anyway, this yeah, some, this all sorts of kind of interesting, interesting folk yeah. out there.
0: Have you been to the Nepcastle Estate? That's the I one love where Nepp. they're yeah. doing. Oh, you've, 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 yeah,
1: I've been lots of times. Yes. Oh
0: right, yeah, it's up in um, West Grinstead area, isn't it's it? It's quite Shipley?
1: close to yeah, yeah. It's not far from Gatwick okay. Airport, A24 really. It's direction. just yeah. kind of west of Crawley, somewhere in in in. in West Sussex but it's I mean really cool place I recommend to anyone to go have a look around it's I mean it's it's if, if people haven't heard of it so it's a rewilding project which essentially means it was a three and a half thousand acre estate mm. um owned by um this family who had it for you know been in the family for hundreds of years mm. but it's on the Sussex clay which isn't very fertile sort it's not great for farming really and they really they would even with all the subsidies that, that that farmers get, they were struggling to make a living. Mm. And, you know, they were basically farming it as intensively as they could to, and just about breaking even. Mm. Um, and they just decided to do something different and they basically put a fence around it, chucked in some uh, old breed cows and pigs and some Exmoor ponies and some deer mm. and then just stood back and said, let's see what happens. And that uh, I think that was 17... Years ago, or thereabouts, mm. and you can go there now. You can you can you can camp on site. You can hike around. You can go on a safari. I do a bee safari every year, um, and uh, and it's just it's just full of life. You know, yeah. the the cowpats are all full of hundreds of beetles, which is something you don't see because normally cowpats of the cows have all been dosed with anti-worming uh, stuff called ivermectin, which kills all the insects that might try and break down the cow poo. Right.
3: um
1: so if you cowpats in farmers fields don't tend to have much insect life in them generally whereas a nep the cowpats are just kind of just just absolutely alive <laughs> I mean, it's not just the cowpats but um the the, the, the nightingale population is booming oh. there there are turtle doves there which are almost extinct in britain oh. um cuckoos have become quite common which again are numbers of Fallen through the floor, purple emperor butterflies swarms of them. Oh. Um, never seen so many purple emperor butterflies in my life as oh. there are there. So it's it's really really interesting yeah. to go and have a look. What happens if you, you know, just just let nature take over basically.
0: Yeah, um, but it, I get managing it a bit, but basically they, laying off aren't they?
1: they oh. the only management basically is they have to they um, they have to cull the animals and they they sell the meat, in, mm. you know, as sort of premium, you know organic whatever um, and the reason they have to do that is because basically they can't introduce wolves and bears um, this being Sussex be <laughs> um, they would love to they have I believe just recently got permission for beavers which is really exciting yeah. so there's going to be a beaver release oh. uh, and I'd love to I, I, we should have beavers all over Britain again really good for mitigating flood risk because the dams slow water flow down rivers um, and there's lots of evidence that that be and also really good for biodiversity the the, the shallow lakes that they create. Right. Um, uh, and it is happening, you know I think gov- the government has just is very slowly giving permission. They were reluctant for decades to do so, but now there are quite a few beaver releases going on, and one is going to be at net, which is brilliant it is. Um, but basically, without any predators the, ca- the the herbivore, the cows and pigs and whatever would breed and because there would become too many and mm. then they 'd all start starving in the fields, and that wouldn 't look good yeah. um, so they 're not allowed to do that for legal reasons anyway. <laughs> Uh, so they say, but apart from culling the animals basically there is no management and that's the whole point of it is that they're not management would imply that they had a target that they they were deliberately trying to do something but the whole point of rewilding is you're not trying to do anything you're just standing back and saying nature do what the heck you want Mm. which I think is really cool and obviously it would be nice if it was Big enough to have wolves. Yeah, <laughs> um, I would love it. I'm
0: not going out in your garden actually now. I'll just You're all right. Firmly You're behind the The, dark the
1: fiercest thing is the turkey. <laughs> but, uh, well, um, that's it's amazing. But it would be cool. It
0: would. Yeah. Um,
1: and I, actually, I mean, I think I'm right in saying every European country now has wolves, apart from um, Britain and Ireland, because obviously they can't get here. But even the Netherlands has a couple that wandered in from Germany, I think. Right. Um and, and the Netherlands is an incredibly crowded little country. Yes. So it's not as unthinkable as, you know... And, and I mean, in lots of places like Italy, you know, people have lived alongside wolves forever yeah. without any great problems. Yes. So I think there are parts of Britain where you could realistically have wolves and lynx. Um, and I, I think it would be absolutely fantastic. But uh, I suspect it'll be a long time before <laughs> everyone's persuaded... <laughs> So
0: just before we close, um, could you just give us then, in in you know an ordinary garden, what would be your sort of top five say plants that we should think about growing that um, would be really useful and preferably not too.
1: There are so many. It's 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 always hard to narrow it down. Yeah. Um, But But, uh, so top choices, catmint is actually. For, particularly for bumblebees right. and for a whole range of other pies. It's really easy to grow. Yeah. It's really pretty. It flowers for months and months, right through from early summer to, to autumn. And it's covered in insect life.
0: Any sort of catmint?
1: Well, the, so this is an interesting one. Is it, Basically, every variety tends to be slightly different. So people say, you know, catmint is good, lavender is good. But actually, within catmints, uh, uh, there, there are lots... That, there's a lot of variation as to which ones uh, are best yeah um uh so this one is uh six hills giant oh right yes which is one of the best ones um but um i do have a, actually have a I, you'll have to wait a year but i've got a new book coming out which has lots of detail about where we've all the information that's available, at which precise varieties are best ones to grow, but people will have to wait. I'll go
0: on the waiting list for that. Yeah, for that, yeah.
1: Anyway, Six Hills Giant is is really good for for catmint. Okay. Uh, comfrey, um, need to be a bit careful which type of comfrey you get, but com- I mean comfrey is brilliant, a brilliant plant. I love comfrey because it's fantastic for bees, tons of nectar, mm. uh, but it's also really good for composting. Um, you just chop the leaf, chop it down, and chuck it in the compost heap, or make liquid manure if you. Uh, if you want to fertilise your tomatoes, with people buy liquid fertiliser for tomatoes, but you don't need to. If you just get comfrey leaves and stick them in a barrel of water mm. for a couple of weeks until the whole lot's a festerous brown mess and <laughs> pour it on your tomatoes, they love it. Um, there's, a, there's a variety of comfrey called Bocking 14, um, which is uh, is sterile, so it doesn't seed around the garden. Right. Um, but um, so it's because some, some comfrey's kind Spread. of take over. yeah, yeah. yeah um so comfrey catmint uh marjoram is fantastic actually just plain old marjoram um is one of the and really good for butterflies and hoverflies as well as bees it's one of the plants that attracts the biggest variety of different insects of, of the sort of common things that people might grow right um oh i could go on and on yes, but there's three'll, three'll <laughs> we'll do do those three three for we'll, the moment so i've got a
0: list of plants i need to buy I dig a pond
1: yeah uh, Stop the mowing so Stop much. Mowing. Don't use any don't pesticides. There's
0: a lot of don'ts. Yeah, so that's yeah. all fine cause I'm like, it's
1: easier to to not do things. Yes, easy not do
0: things. Check the compost heap. Buy a couple of beavers.
1: A couple of beavers would be would be great. Yeah, supply is limited at the moment.
0: But thank you so much, uh, Dave, uh, for giving me pleasure. your time, and uh, it's been absolutely fantastic. And we look forward to the next book coming out.
1: Yeah. Um. Um. Yeah. So uh, there's two coming out next year actually there's the the sort of the gardening uh, one which is like i say it's more of a gardening manual for wildlife um and there's also a, a rather doom and gloom insect apocalypse oh, book which i haven't actually decided on the title but it's it's uh, um silent earth seems to be the most likely title at the moment oh. but i haven't quite decided gosh
0: that does sound scary it might
1: not be the most cheerful book i've ever written no. but hopefully the most important
0: that's sort uh, reminds me of wasn't there somebody called Rachel Carson?
1: Mm, well, I've was slightly it? stolen the title, *Silent Spring*. Oh, was it? Yeah, yes. it's it's sort of the sort of a sequel, if oh, you dear. like, sort of. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. But it, it's 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 also got lots of positive stuff about what we can do, yeah. As well as the dooming, and, doom and who part. knows
0: by next year. Who may be in a completely different more positive.
1: Let's hope so. Environment. Yes. Yes. Everybody, the world is message. the world is changing and, yeah. and it's, you know, time for one last push to try and get everyone on board, I reckon.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Dave Goulson can be contacted via the Gulson Lab at the University of Sussex. www.sussex.ac.uk forward slash life sci forward slash gulson lab you can email him at D.goulson at sussex.ac.uk he's also on twitter at dave gulson and watch him also on his youtube channel do read his books they're brilliant the most recent one being the garden jungle the others are bee quest a buzz in the meadow and a sting in the tail. They're essential for anyone who has a garden and wants to save the planet. You can also follow me as I continue my podcasting pursuits on Spotify and other podcast platforms. And I'm also on Instagram at In the Weeds with Anne. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time in the Weeds.